Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Brittany Wallman grew up in a small town, but the lessons she learned there have made her into one of the best journalists in the big city. You've read her work. She shared in a Pulitzer Prize at the Sun Sentinel for her thoughtful coverage of the Parkland shooting. She's focused her career on deep reporting and investigative journalism. She looks for the humanity at the root of the big story. Now she's at the Miami Herald. She's bringing her small town insight into people to an even bigger city. And there's plenty to work with in Miami-Dade. Developers pushing to build, embattled politicians, and of course, every big story has a Miami angle, like the ongoing saga of Jeffrey Epstein. She'll never be bored. There's the potential for corruption in every contract, in every public post, and now it's Brittany's job to help uncover it. Brittany, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm 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 excited to talk to you about it, um, because this is uh, people don't understand that that even making what we were talking about just before we came on is making that shift, making that change, even from Broward to Dade or Dade to Broward. It's it's a big adjustment. It's a big adjustment in in your in your way of thinking, in your way of acting, in your in your in your reporting skills, right? It is. I, I've been saying. I feel like I've been, you know, plopped in Nebraska or something. I just have <laughs> so much to learn. Um, and and you know, this is interesting because you and I, you and I actually have uh, we have a similar kind of start at the Sun Sentinel because I remember my first published byline was at nineteen at the Sun Sentinel, and I remember I had a mentor there named Ray Cox. And oh, when yeah. I and do you remember Ray? Do you yeah. ever work with him? Yep. He was at the Atlanta Journal um, Constitution for a while afterwards, and he told me. Um, you know, you have to, because I remember I graduated after being an intern. He said, uh, you know, you can't get a job here yet. You have to go to a small town and go to a small paper and make your mistakes on a small scale uh, so that fewer people will see them. Uh, <laughs> and at the same time, you learn. Pre-internet, of course. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then also you kind of, if you, when you learn how a small town works, you learn how a big city works, that it's all just, it's all just a matter of scale. Right, right. My first beat was, um, Fort Myers Beach had incorporated, and I worked at the news press, and so I got a whole education in everything about municipalities and land use plans and and all of that. It was perfect. So, talk to me about. I mean, you you they you came. Uh, you've now started at the Miami Herald. Uh, like, was it three months ago? And they threw you right in the deep end, right? Oh yeah. I mean, um, I was put on a team to cover the transgender athlete controversy um that was in Broward County talk to me talk to me through talk me through that and that was the situation where you had um a a person who had identified as a girl since she was like three Hmm. and had been known as a girl throughout her life in school and um under DeSantis's new law um, you know, it's illegal for her to play on the girls' volleyball team. And so um, the school in Coconut Creek has been sanctioned. And so I had just been at the Herald for a couple weeks at that point, but because it was in Broward, um, you know, I I was tapped to help with that. It was great because I'm really just trying to integrate into the newsroom and meet people and work with people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being on the I-team 
can be isolating. You can end up on a project um, and not meeting people for a long time. So I was like, it felt so good to have about my first byline. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that story is like a perfect example of the things that seem like they're interesting to you, which is not just, you think of investigations and you think of big data crunching and sifting through data and numbers, which is part of it. But there's also like at the end of the day, like you really make it about the people and the humanity. Right. I think um, I always tell myself, you know, there's a difference between a report and a story. Hmm. And um, governments issue reports. You know, and right. um, years back, I, you know, had lunch with Justin Safey. He's a lobbyist now, but he, you know, um, has the, the Safey Review and he just was kind of like a pioneer in online uh, journalism. And he and metrics before everyone else had metrics and he told me that you know a a tweet or a post with a person's name in it mm. does so much better than any other post and it's because people connect with story and with uh, you know hearing about another person's life and i certainly do right we're talking about jumping in the deep end um you know the the whole list of of names associated with jeffrey epstein started to come out and that was that was based on a lawsuit from McClatchy, which owns the Miami Herald. So you were part of those, the early tellings of some of those names and connections that were being revealed in court documents, right? Like That's here, right. I kind weeks. of felt like, um, you know, a reporter tryout or something <laughs> because <laughs> I, it was my first time ever covering anything about the Epstein story. Right. And here I am with, you know, Julie Brown and Ben Weeder, who have been covering it for so long. And I'm in the middle of listening to Julie's book. The, uh, perversion which of is justice. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's amazing not just about that story, but also as sort of telling you how she, you know, got the story and how she did her reporting, and it's also teaching me about people in the newsroom. You know, so it's been a real education. But um, that landed on me. I was so thrilled to have the opportunity to work with them. Um, but you know, I was like up to my eyeballs in you know, reading this sordid, you know, tales of, oh my goodness. I mean, yeah. I like, I need to watch a Disney movie after. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I think there's a dump of records, like probably right now that I'm missing. So thank yeah, you. <laughs> yeah. The team is working on it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're, you're, I mean, you land here now there's like, you know, again, we talk about politics, like, uh, you know, the, the mayor is is being um, investigated for, for the city of Miami mayor investigated for some connections to uh, to a developer. Developers are always under scrutiny for corruption. We have a, a city commissioner that got sued, you know, and has a big judgment against him. Like, welcome to Miami, right? It's just, it's so incredible. And I feel like, I mean, it took me 25 years to learn Broward and all of the interconnections between people. And so um, I have, I mean, I, like, you could put what I know about Miami politics in a thimble compared to, you know, like <laughs> Joey and Sarah, who, are, who did this big, amazing, you know, project that just um, was published. Um, but I, I've kind of felt up to a new challenge and was ready to learn something new and I mean, I, it's no surprise to anyone listening that like Broward people don't venture into Miami-Dade that often unless they work here. <laughs> and vice versa, usually. Yeah. It's like down there. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, it's scary, the traffic and the, you know, like all of a sudden you've missed an off-ramp that you needed. That's kind of like Miami in a nutshell for me. But 
I, now, how do you try to frame that for folks who are like away from that that critical uh, uh, county line border? Um, how do you try to explain it to folks the difference between uh, culturally uh, between the two the two counties? Well, I mean, for me, what I mean, the main cultural phenomenon of Broward is how very liberal it is. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, as a member of the mainstream media, you know, people like to criticize how liberal the paper is, et cetera, et cetera. Well, hello. I mean, I'm not saying that that's true, but Broward is the um, the most Democratic county in Florida. Hmm. And, and so you can't get elected if you're not a Democrat. If you're a Republican, you have to change parties and pretend to be a Democrat. Um, and so I've really come to learn that audience and what they care about. And, um, you know, and it all, um, I think, I mean, there's plenty of Republicans there mm -hmm. and people that are, are no party, which is um, what I am. Yeah, same, uh, same here. You know, so, and Miami-Dade is... Um, you know, just so different. I just have so much to learn about the the politics and the culture. Um, I don't. I mean, I took French. <laughs> I'm <laughs> kicking myself. But you I know took what? Four years of French that will help you with a huge part of the Miami well, true, community but, who is who speaks Creole. Yeah, so you'll I get mean, you'll get like ninety percent of the way with with French. With the, I uh, guess. The, the I mean, I'm crowd. using Duolingo. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm on a streak. <laughs> and I, you know, and I bought a calendar that teaches me a Spanish word every day. <laughs> what did you learn today? What was your, what was your well, Spanish I, word of the I day? I didn't even change the calendar today. But, um, but like the first thing I had to learn was how to order my lunch without rice, you know. Seen <laughs> or you know, like okay. <laughs> there, was there a part of it like making a change at this point in career? I mean, obviously, I can empathize. I, you know, I started doing this radio show a little over a year ago now. Was there a part of it that was about the challenge, about doing something new and something different? Talk to me about the decision that went into making a change after you've been in a place for 25 years. Yeah, I always said um, I am riding this train into the wall. I'm going to be the last person to turn out the lights. I mean, every in journalism, you mean? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like at the Sentinel. I mean, everybody oh, I knew that I was. You were ride or was, die. I, you know, I was never leaving there. And I loved it there. It was my home. I was treated so well there. You know, there's great journalists there. I mean, I have so much affection for the Sun Sentinel. I never even thought about leaving. We were offered buyouts multiple times. Mm. Um, you know, I saw so many friends um, make the decision to leave. And really, until the pandemic, um, even though this is a big market with a lot of different media opportunities, um, you know, I'm a newspaper girl, and um, so to leave the Sentinel, I would have had to, you know, and I also, I'm a mother. I There was no way I could be trying to commute from downtown Miami or Palm Beach County or something back to my home in Plantation to get my kids from aftercare or daycare. I mean, just... You know, I mean, I'm trying to chase that myth of the, the superwoman that can work full time and, and be a good parent. And I mean, I have a husband. I'm not a single mom. But um, just really, really hard when you're on like the metro side of news where you're covering meetings until three o'clock in the morning. And so one of the little tiny positives about the pandemic is that it opened up all of these hybrid and remote jobs. Hmm. And so... Wow, here we are. A lot of people uh, papers don't even have newsrooms anymore. Right. 
and the Herald had this I-Team opening that's, um, you know, where I go to, I was going to the Sun Sentinel once a week, the other direction. Um, now I go to the, the Herald has a newsroom over by uh, Miami Airport. And so I had reached this point, I actually was just, you know, looking back at my New Year's resolutions from last year. And oh, I, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a big resolutions person. How'd you, how have you done? It, well, I've, it said, consider leaving the Sun Sentinel. Wow. And just as like, a personal challenge or what, yeah, what led to that I, well, writing that resolution? You know, every time we had layoffs, which is many times over the last 15 years, mm-hmm. um, you know, I would get into, I did a layoff budget. What's the least amount I could live on? I, I created a website, BrittanyWalman.com, so that I could, you know, so I would live uh, as a entity when I'm not at the Sun Sentinel. Um, Work on your brand. That's yeah. what you got to do, right? Yeah. And um, I guess I reached uh, Alden Global Capital hedge fund that's really notorious for um, stripping down newspapers, bought the Tribune Company, which owns the Sun Sentinel, uh, in 2021. And that was very scary. Yeah. So I did a lot of prep. Um, and, and I just sort of reached a point mentally where I thought, hmm, you know, if there were the right opportunity, I mean, I, I saw so many people, um, you know, work for so long to try to get a job. I didn't want to be in desperation or... in that, that idea of like just getting, uh, you know, they come in, they trim the staff and you end up uh, out of a job and now... Yeah. With, I mean, I, two kids I, in school. what haunted me was there was a story of like a paper that ended up with only one reporter. And I'm like... I think I read that. And Someone's... I'm like, of course, I'm thinking... I'll be the Sun Sentinel's one reporter. <laughs> but uh, but you had a thing of most of your career, whereas you got to live and work and raise your kids in the same town that you yeah. covered, which is something that sometimes uh, reporters don't get to do because you move around so much in your career. That's true. Well, there's really something to that. I really felt like that was part of the public service that I was called to do is to be able to be a reporter in my own community and... Um, and now I, you know, once, once I moved to the investigations team and became the the investigations editor at the Sun Sentinel, really my coverage reach broadened to South Florida anyway. Mm-hmm. And I started to connect with Miami-Dade, um, you know, politicians and cover the whole region. Mm-hmm. And so I think that helped, uh, you know, the sort of evolution in my mind. And after I had reached this point where I thought, um, you know, I could potentially start looking for a great remote job. I just don't want to leave South Florida because I love it. I love what a melting pot it is. I mean, I grew up in these homogenous communities in Iowa and Oklahoma, um, and I just love how uh, the variety here, it's just just such a, I mean, and I love to be warm. You know, I mean, I had enough snowdrifts in my life growing up in, in Iowa. Right. Uh, I don't need to be putting any snowsuits on. Our guest today is Brittany Wallman. She's an investigative journalist for the Miami Herald. She was previously an investigative editor for the Sun Sentinel, where she worked for 25 years. But Brittany, you started, you for being in, in two major papers in one of the biggest media markets in the country, you grew up in a really small town, right? Like you grew up where in Iowa? Yeah. I mean, I feel like... Um a mutt from the pound or something because I have no pedigree whatsoever, you know, and I'm working with all these amazing journalists. Who well, to- Julie Brown, who you mentioned earlier, she would also say that she has no pedigree. Yeah, true, like, true. Like she, she grew up in Philly and she basically put herself kind of through school yeah. and she's a, she's a real, she's, she's like I, a self-made. I get, I get, I get a lot of vibes, a lot of Julie she's, Brown she's vibes. She's amazing. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, there's just so many amazing journalists in the Herald newsroom that I just, I still have imposter syndrome oh, even being stop there. It. But stop. But um, but I had the same feeling when I got there. So okay. I, I get it. I get it. Um, but so tell me about growing up. Like, what where, what town in Iowa did you? Yeah. Live in? Well, my dad was a, a prison warden, and he's he grew up in Miami, uh, Miami Beach. Really. Um, and my mom. Uh, I mean, he's born in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my mom grew up in Jacksonville, so we had some roots in Florida. But um, because he was a prison warden, we moved around. And every- oh, so be- that jo- I didn't know. I don't know anything about being a prison warden and what that means for your family's lifestyle. So you do move around because of that? Yeah, I mean, every time, especially in Oklahoma, every time there was a riot, they would just move the entire administration to another prison. Oh wow! And so um, I went to three different high schools because there were there were riots everywhere. <laughs> like um, there'd be a riot, then they would decide we had to you know move across the state to some other prison. And so um, in Iowa, we were at uh, a women's reformatory in a tiny town, Rockwell City, population about a thousand, and out in the cornfields. And um, I'm one of four girls. We were all born in within five years so we're all sort of the same age and um you know uh it was a um i mean it was great there were we roamed you know how kids back in the day we roamed around all day and no one knew you and your three sisters going off and together in different directions riding standing on the back of the horse and you know (laughs) whatever (laughs) um wow but um then what, what was it like being that close to that kind of enterprise, that part of like American culture? Like really, the prison system is like is almost like a fifth estate in this country. Yeah, it's, it's become such a big enterprise. What what did you learn from that? And I didn't realize it. My mom tells me that you know the townspeople really didn't like having a prison there. I mean, hello, that, I guess that's obvious, but I didn't realize that at the time. And so that we she didn't really feel accepted there um but i i mean i loved it there um in oklahoma what what did your mom do she's a just a housewife just i mean just i'm gonna get killed for saying that put put parentheses around just yeah (laughs) i mean of four hellions she kept four four Uh, girls from from uh, being lost in the woods every day right um but um in oklahoma we lived uh i mean for a number of years, we lived at the uh, Oklahoma State Penitentiary, which is the uh, maximum security prison. Um, and so we're inside the gates. Wait, you, you know. live? What do you mean you lived at? You well, lived the way most the... of these prisons work, I mean, all of them really um, back then, uh, the administration lives on the campus, be, you know, because you're, I mean, you know, when there were escapes or there's, I mean, you just had to be there. And it's so, like a military base in a lot of ways. Um, way. So we were literally, I mean, so you're inside the gate. I mean, we had to have our car searched every time we, we left home because in case an inmate was in the car or whatever. I mean, it's literally Brittany, like. This like, is this is quite <laughs> a growing up that you had. Yeah. And like, I mean, now looking back on it, it blows my mind as a parent, but like. You know, we played. There were your kids grew up in a in a probably like a, a gated community. I mean, in, like in, in I'm Broward, like, oh, right? I, that's the only gated community I ever lived in. But <laughs> um, but like we were on, we had a BB gun shooting team, and our coaches were inmates, the minimum security guys. You know, and um, that it wait that is yeah. hilarious. Your 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 shooting coaches the were inmates. Galaxy JCs. Yeah, I wonder oh. what their training for that job that was. I don't think I want to know. And, um, you know, we played pool, we played basketball with inmates. Um, I mean, when I was little and we were at the women's reformatory, we had an inmate who was our babysitter. Um, And so I really just, um, 
I guess I have always felt comfortable and had empathy for people of all ranks of society because, you know, that's who we I grew up around. I mean, they all had stories, you know. I mean, I, people would ask if we were afraid. You know, it's like this one guy, Sid, that we played basketball with a lot. He had murdered his brother uh, because his brother was like, you know, his wife was cheating on him with his brother or something. I mean, I, I really didn't think that much of it. Um, you know, uh, our, there were guards up in the towers all around our house, you know, so I never felt unsafe. I mean, one night my younger sister and I actually came upon five inmates that were escaping and um oh my god yeah we were like walking home from babysitting at a neighbor's house and the the maximum security guys wear blue and the the minimum security wore white and so we see these three guys in blue running behind our house like and we were like oh my gosh they're escaping let's turn around and all of the administration of the prison was like playing poker or something at one of the houses you know and so we went over there and told them and you know they didn't really believe us and um, oh my God. then they did a head count. But this is why we had to live on the campus because, you know, you're just always, there's just always stuff going on. I mean, one time they, the guys got drunk on the yard. They fermented some potatoes and got drunk. And there was a huge <laughs> some riot. Vodka, some and, like distilled vodka yeah, there from fermented uh, potatoes. And then like another time when I was in 11th grade, uh, I was at my friend's house and they were saying on TV, the deputy warden's being held hostage. And I'm like, my dad's a deputy warden and oh my God. there was a huge huge riot there that must um, have been scary that and, must have uh, been scary when things like that happening your dad wasn't home and he got beat up and some inmate you know intervened and said you know don't kill the deputy and you know he went home and got his gun and went back and you oh know so there God. was so much drama but um i you know so i guess i'm just so used to chaos and drama and I really don't think that you know and I just think uh, I I'm a very empathetic person I can you know I just feel really comfortable uh around all I mean all types of people you know I know everybody has a story and I try not to judge people you know I try to understand um what brings somebody to the lowest point of their lives or the highest you know so i mean there's there's a lot of talk in this country about we put people in prisons and we forget about them you know yeah. um and we have a particular view we paint with a broad brush having this kind of experience really must have um painted a lot of nuance for you must have given you a lot of nuance and a lot of insight like you were saying into yeah the, the roller coasters of people's lives it's really um amazing to me how we just throw people away and sometimes like our standards change and we decide that you don't have to go to prison for smoking marijuana or whatever and what about all these people whose lives were just tossed aside and and also anybody that's covered prisons i haven't but you know knows that um just getting people to care about somebody who's an inmate a convict is really hard i mean even among um you know, people that are really liberal, uh, it's still hard to get people to care about lawbreakers. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard, especially if it's if it's touched your life personally, to to think yeah. like, oh, uh, you know, I believe I believe uh, in a certain way, but then it affect if it affects my life personally, then I, I feel differently. Yeah. about it, you know. 
um, and that, and getting people to that like that that cognitive dissonance get to get past that, you know, to still see inmates as people who are who are you know in our are part of our society. Yeah, I mean, I'm not you know I'm a, I'm a mix. I mean, I'm uh, I'm not against the death penalty. Um, I but I I understand that you know errors are made and people are are just locked away for years for things they didn't do, uh, you know. So. I really just I see the whole spectrum there. Yeah, I've I've been kind of open to that more. I mean, I've spoken in the past about my my dad uh, being killed um, and the person who's yeah, awaiting so trial, sorry. and and it's made me think about how do I how do, what do I think about uh, what is the ultimate penalty for someone like that, right? With that someone that happens, and then and it makes yeah. me think about how do I feel about the death penalty, you know, and how do I feel about life in prison yeah. or rehabilitation or hmm. or or mental, you know. Um, uh, support for people with mental illness. You know, it's right. It's, it's unfortunate is... that for sometimes it ha- you have to be faced with those questions in a kind of an in, a, in an unrelenting way before you you think deeply about them. You know. Yeah, I mean, I guess my time at prisons has made me feel like life in prison does, might not be so bad. You know, like people think. I mean, it, you know, it depends on where you are, but mm. I just don't necessarily think that you know. A, a three meals a day and a shower and you know computer access and playing volleyball I mean I mean I, I know there's abuses and horrible things that go on in some facilities um, but uh, you know it not you know not at all right I'm curious what then growing up with that kind of background how it got you thinking about getting into journalism like when did that come into your life well, I remember my dad complaining about like a uh, a nuisance reporter hmm. in that town, McAllister, when when that big escape happened, um, and and the fact that I still remember that now, I mean, I, there was just something a little spark there where I, you know, thought, oh, that's kind of funny. You what, know? what was the complaint? Like, what was he complaining about? Well, because the guy was trying to probably expose, you know. Um, and find out how how these guys got out, which I think it was they had um, used a volleyball net to, uh, to, I mean, which is crazy. I, it's, I mean, if you saw the prison, you'd be like, I cannot believe anybody got out of there. Um, That's some MacGyver stuff. Uh, totally. Um, but um, I really, because we moved around a lot, I never really, I don't, you know, I don't even know if they had school papers. I, I went to, I had an aunt and uncle that, you know, I always say they rescued me out of Oklahoma. Um, big Gator fans, you know. Oh, you got to like them already. I mean, <laughs> I I'm mean, revealing myself to be a Gator myself. Gators. I mean, oh, man, the Gator Nation is strong, is it? Um, I and mean, I said I didn't have a pedigree, but I did go to UF. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, One uh, of the great journalism programs in the country. I'm yeah. just going to plug that. I'm just going to put that I mean, that's how, that's what happened is um, I was in Oklahoma. I, you know, had, had all, you know, all that craziness. And then on top of everything else, my boy, the first week of my senior year where I was a new student, my senior year, mm. uh, my boyfriend killed himself. Oh, brilliant. And so, left so a note that he was writing to me while he's, you know, in a garage with carbon monoxide. And I didn't tell anybody because I was the new student and I'm not, you know, like I'm not, I, I had to put on that new student face and be, oh, make friends. And, 
Um, and and also, and it was my senior year, and I didn't really know what I wanted to, to be, and I, it was just so, so difficult. And and I also I had a very fraught relationship with my mother, who um, she, I mean, you know, I'm just spilling all beans, but we have a great relationship now. But she just didn't like me. I mean, I was. She said we had a personality conflict, mm. and. Um, so God, having three daughters, I can tell you <laughs> three net. Well, one yeah. was no longer a teen, but two teens. It's the hardest for me. It was, it's been the hardest time to really, as they become themselves, yeah. you know, as they grow fully into their personality and, and you try to figure out where yeah. everything fits now, you know, your, your and I have such change. a big mouth. I mean, like I'm just, I talk back, you know, and I like it. And so, um, so I was always grounded and, you know, uh, it just was so you were dealing with all these things as a senior yeah. in high school having lost your boyfriend uh oh. and so um and this family comes to rescue you and there are they in gainesville or are they is that what they gets live you in to- atlantic beach which is up in jacksonville area and um and they had just always taken me under their wing and one of the things i really learned from this experience um because i've just spent a lot of time thinking about it hmm. um is because you know some people that who were you know uh, mistreated by a parent you know just totally go off the rails you know and I'm and I'm just thought like what why you know my dad loved me and I always felt like I was his favorite <laughs> but I think that you know uh, one person can have such a profound influence on a young person's life and it, it's really made such like such an imprint on me as a journalist how and I've tried to do this for, for young people that I've met that are troubled, and I have such a heart for troubled uh, young girls because of this. But my aunt and uncle, I mean, they had noticed. They came to visit us in Iowa when I was about nine, and, and that was when I first met my uncle because it was my aunt had just married him. Mm-hmm. And I remember him saying, why, why do you think your mom uh, treats you like this? And I was so embarrassed. And he was like, do you think she's jealous or, you know, I mean, I just remember how embarrassed I was, but like from then on, they just, you know, sort of adopted me as, uh, you know, like, a. they, they made sure that I got out of Oklahoma. They said, we'll send you to UF. You don't worry about the, I mean, we had no money, you know, um, they loaned me the money for school wow, and then. Amazing which was out of state tuition and then when i yeah. had when we my first child they said just put the money towards his education wow and which Amazing. i get emotional thinking about it because uh what a thing to do for somebody you know i mean i just i'm so grateful and so they saved me you know they rescued me they sent me to uf and they were the ones that said and i was pre pre-med i wanted to be a a surgeon <laughs> And, um, but your life, I mean, it's, I, I mean, I see that you're a journalist, obviously, but like this idea of like, there is a, there is a, there's a public service. There is a, a yeah. humanity in, in both of those careers. Yeah. I mean, because I felt like so many people extended so much love and grace to me in my life. There were so many adults, um, that, you know, teachers, uh, people at my church, you know, that that meant everything to me and so um i just love the aspect of journalism where you can make a difference in in somebody's life especially a young person but any person or even just to people love to have their story heard i mean i just you know you think that oh nobody 
you know, people don't want to talk to journalists. I, I did this one thing for a while where I would just go around and interview homeless people in Fort Lauderdale. And every single one of them, just they, they, someone wants to hear my story, you know? Um, I so, always remember. I always think about um, there were times where I was doing lots of um, obituaries and what have you, and it can be the hardest thing for a journalist to come to someone on the maybe one of the worst days of yeah. their life when they've lost someone very close to them. And I learned very early on that if you treat it with that that thing, like I want to tell the story of this person that you've lost, that they are people are people want you to know about this person yeah. that they love, that they care about them. I mean, it, it's it's very powerful um, the written word. And um, so when I was at UF pre-med and like, oh my gosh, I have to take calculus. And I had had (laughs) not so great of an education because, you know, in Oklahoma, I mean, my junior year, there were 23 people in the entire junior class. And that was from two towns. Oh my gosh. And um, Wow, 23 people in your whole junior class. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. And so, you know, there's no honors, anything, you know. Um, I did manage to get straight A's. and which I'm sure, thank goodness, you know, helped get me out of there. But, um, you know, my aunt and uncle said, uh, you ought to check out their journalism school, you know. Amazing. And, and it's always, it's amazing how <laughs> those people, like some of those, those yeah. words can literally Isn't say. Isn't that amazing? Because I really never thought about it. I didn't know anything about journalism or newspapers, well, you know. I want to ask you about this a little bit more and also kind of get into those moments where you see the work that you start doing, even at a young age how it starts to have a difference, make a difference in people's lives. But first, we have to take our last break. Our guest today is Brittany Wallman. She's shared in the Sun Sentinel's 2019 Pulitzer Prize for their coverage of the Parkland shooting. And and now she's an investigative journalist for the Miami Herald. Uh, If you or someone uh, you know needs help, please know you have options. The National Suicide Prevention Line number is 988. If you missed any part of our conversation, all Sundial episodes are available on our daily podcast. Our guest today is Brittany Wallman. She's an investigative journalist for the Miami Herald. She was previously at the Sun Sentinel where she worked for 25 years. You know, you have this this whole background that's really leading you into understanding people at a, at a, at a deep level, um, humanely. Um, and then you come to journalism. Someone, you know, you're, the aunt and uncle who are so formative in your life say, why don't you look at this? And something about it must have immediately clicked, right? Finding your tribe if you're still doing it, you know, almost 30 plus years later. Yeah. I mean, I just, it's remarkable that I ended up in something that, you know, as they say, if you, you know, do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And so I'm always telling my kids and anybody that I can tell, you know, because I was, I loved writing always. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had, I loved to read. I had a diary, a journal. I wrote poetry. I wrote, you know, I just loved to write. And I had never really put it together that, journalism is just such a um a place of creative freedom mm-hmm. you know um but also a really strict adherence to truth and um it really um you know i it's very much like a writing prompt to this idea of like you can tell the story <laughs> yeah. any way you want it as long as it includes all as long as it's factually correct yeah. everything you say every single sentence you write is factually correct as long as you do that and like i love the aspect of it you know as somebody who's like I said, I'm Maldi, I talk back, you know, to be able to, you could walk in the door from, you could, maybe you haven't even graduated college and you're an intern and you are interviewing the, you know, the top of industry or politics or what have you is such a great equalizer. And 
you know, the feedback that you get from the public and how much, how grateful they are mm-hmm. and, and just arming people with information is just um, such a powerful thing. So there's just every, and, I, and journalists are cool people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. are it's they a, not? It's a weird, wild tribe. It's very much like herding cats. I always, I've always <laughs> appreciated about that, about newsroom. It's this, uh, it's this confederance, confederacy of, of weirdos, <laughs> yeah. which I appreciate. Yeah. Like, um, the, I mean, there's no dress code. There's no schedule. Um, there's no sacred cows usually, yeah, other than adhering to, the, other than adhering to the truth. Yeah. Don't, don't make any. Don't make up a single thing. You can. Cur- I mean, outside you, of like, that, I'm surprised we haven't had to push the beep button. You know. Um, <laughs> you yeah. know, I'm am cu- curious about moments that where you first learned that, right? Like, what were some of the early moments for you where you were like. This really made a difference in someone's life. I, I'll say I'll share one. I was even in college, and I was writing uh, an obituary of the uh, anthropologist and forensic uh, scientist uh, Bill Maple, mm-hmm. who would he was the lead investigator on the Value Jet crash. Folks will remember that he wrote this amazing book called Dead Men Don't Tell Tales. I had been a student in his class, and then he later died, and I wrote his obituary oh, wow. at the Florida Alligator. And something about the way that his family opened and wanted his story told and like they passed around the phone to different family members in the room. Like I was in, I was in. And I'm curious what some of those early moments were for you that you were like, man, I'll never forget these moments where you're really real with people, you know? Well, I mean, one of the most remarkable reporting situations that I was in was again, when I was going around you know, I don't know. Some of you might remember when the flip camera came out. It was like the the advent of portable video cameras that mm-hmm. had a USB that flipped out. Right. Okay. I had one, and I was so excited. And I like was the like shaky video creator. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's all come back around to that now. It's all TikTok now. To that now. But um, I was. One of the homeless people that I interviewed, I posted, you know, I was posting these on, on a YouTube channel and somebody commented and said, uh, this guy murdered a little girl in Illinois. I mean, cause he gave me his name, hmm. you know? And someone looked it up and like, and I like, oh my gosh. I mean, the, the, first of all, it was just amazing how, um, I mean, I've always loved through print and now online, the exchange of information between us and readers and how they help us report and how people become sources and you know just that whole uh relationship is just so cool right there was an awareness of that connection of that that that, that there's a conversation happening that it's not just you in a room exactly i mean right and so you're so um i looked and sure enough you know he um had murdered this little girl he had you know come back from vietnam like a destroyed person so he had you know a sad tale even though he's a despicable child murderer um and um and so i came back to interview i was petrified you know i'm there interviewing him about this girl he murdered but i'm thinking like is he gonna you know attack me or something and um so i mean it's not a story like like you just told but just it was, I mean, I just continue to be amazed at, um, you know, what you can, the things that you uncover. I mean, the stories that you sort of lay bare and how readers are a part of that. And 
Um, you can, know, you, like, can you talk to me about the nuance of that, of then sitting for that, like ex- having an expectation of what it's going to be like to talk to this person uh, who is both, you can be many things, right? You can both be a war hero. Yeah. And c- who comes home destroyed from a, from a, you know, a, a, a notoriously um, affecting war. Yeah. And also become, be a, a, just like you said, a despicable child killer. Well, that's one of the things is there's so many nuances and... You know, a lot of times the the causes that we take up as journalists are for people that are just really complex Mm -hmm. and they have flaws and they've made mistakes. Right. And so, um, you know, every person is a is a human and we only get one go around, you know. And so um, I this there were so many feelings that I had about this guy because it was a sad story and he was definitely mentally ill and um he had, you know, confessed and he had told his brother, this girl is smiling at me. And so he had, you know, it's sad. I mean, I'm, I have a daughter, I, you know, horrible. Um, but, and here he is living in a park. And so he ended up, because of the coverage, they got him somehow, you know, they scooped him up, of course, you know, and got him some help. And, you know, I, how do you feel about that? Like, oh, I helped this child murderer get, you know, treatment. Uh, but a lot of journalism is like that, you know. Um, you're just, uh, you know, it's not all in a tidy box, you know. Right. And, I mean, I think there's there's a part of that, too, where then <clears throat> you almost you almost start at the end of the story, like, this guy's a child killer. Yeah. But then you, the further you go back, you understand that there's many steps. There are many steps on the, on the turnpike, many exits on the turnpike before you get to that one. Right? Yeah. Well, like the same with covering uh, Nicholas Cruz, which I, I mean, even to say his name, I, a lot of people don't want to hear his name. Yeah, you recall he's the uh, was the regarding the, the Parkland the shooter, Parkland shooter. shooter. Yeah. Um, but you know there was a whole uh, group of people that immediately were sympathetic to his upbringing, and um, you know, so it's just interesting, you know, the the different sides of humanity mm-hmm. that you see as a journalist but um i really got um interested in i mean when it, we did a, a project on sex trafficking at the sun sentinel um that was probably one of my favorite um pieces that i've worked on because to to learn um what's happening to girls in foster care mm-hmm. and um you know i so that remains close to my heart. And in, in a nutshell, what did like just kids kind of getting lost in in a foster system or being like um, taken, you know, put in group homes and then basically, um, you know, stalked by predator sex traffickers, you know, waiting for them to walk to the the convenience store so they can traffic them. And um, so just it's again, it's another category of person that as soon as you hear that oh she's been arrested she ran away i just can't believe how people just throw people away in their minds because they didn't live a perfect life right it's like you're uh, it's like you're picking a shirt off a rack and there's a there's a thread loose and you're like well this is no good anymore and yeah. and we tend to want to do that with people too I just, it doesn't make any sense because who among us is perfect and so i like to be able to um you know tell stories of people that have no advocate at all Mm -hmm. and and you know back to what i was saying earlier about my aunt and uncle i mean i just really uh you know as an individual um even people that i didn't write about um i think you can make a difference in someone's life just 
listening. I mean, I respond to every email. And a lot of times people, you know, say, that's terrible what's happening to you. You know, I don't think I can write about it. But they're like, thank you so much, you know. Yeah. And like when I was on that story, there was a woman, she was a grandmother. Her daughter was, her granddaughter was, um, you know, on the streets, addicted to drugs and had been trafficked. And um, when after our project ran, there was uh some she was she, you know there was a story oh body found on alligator alley oh my goodness and it was this girl mm -hmm. ivy and um and i was one of the first people that her grandmother called because no one people were so tired of listening to her mm -hmm. that no one would listen to her and so she asked me to go with her to see the body and this is way outside of my duty as a reporter i wasn't writing about it but i just like you know you're put in this position where you can actually be that person for somebody and um and she, i mean i hear from her all the time she says you saved my life you know because you listened to my story and you were there for me you know and i really wasn't i didn't do anything you know except for just pick up the phone a couple times you know yeah but it's that connection it's that connection that um that you can get in this in this career yeah. Um, that is not, you know, where you look past the numbers, so to speak, and you look at the people. Yeah. I'm curious whether all of this leaves time and space and do you make for it for writing on your, like on your own, like stuff that is not journalism? Because <laughs> I know during the pandemic you were writing, you were writing a little poetry, right? That's right. I had sort of abandoned poetry for like 30 years after kind of minoring in it at UF. And I guess because being in journalism, you know, I was getting enough writing out of my system and so, yeah, during the pandemic, I signed up for this wild writing thing where, um, and I'm still doing it, you know, you get uh, three videos a week and she gives you these writing prompts from uh, poems and then you just write as fast as you can. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad. And um, and so in the mornings, I you know, that's part of my routine. I do my writing. I just, I'm doing my learning how to speak Spanish. I'm trying to play the guitar. I go for a run. You know, I think I have well, when a you're working on six month <laughs> investigations, you got some time to fill in. You're not writing every day. So can we hear? Can we hear one before we go? Do you have one uh, at at the ready on your phone that you'll that you're willing to? I read do. I mean, this is just what came out of. I I just like I whatever comes out of my pencil or pen is what comes out of my pencil or pen. I'm like, what? Where did that come from? But this was called coming back as a cat. Okay. I wanted to be a bird, you know, with clashing combinations of color and barely eating and singing and soaring, but I've come back as a cat. My paws are padded and my touch on the earth is light, but still, I'm not a bird. I can leap onto a tabletop. I imagine my wings unfurling and the wind catching me to lift me up, but I land with a soft thud. Ribbons excite me. Who's controlling that swirling snake of color? Sorry, I got distracted. My nest is not in the bough of an oak. It's in a tossed robe that my owner heaped on the floor of his office. My owner. My owner. I imagine I'm a bird whose freedom is legion, who answers to the sun and rain and wind and can't be locked in a laundry room. I curl up in the robe. I purr. I am a bird. I am a bird. I am a bird. I am a bird. I don't know why that's making me emotional, but I guess... Just the, I, the idea of of uh, being of freedom, you know. Yeah, I mean, and writing unlocks a lot of that. Uh, and and fortunately, we're you know we can get to see both sides of you that help um, that help tell these stories. 
Brittany, thank you so much for spending the hour with us. It was a thank real pleasure you. getting to know you and get to know your work. And, and we look you. forward to seeing what what's coming next for you at the Thank Herald. you. Thank you so much. Our guest today was Brittany Wallman. She's an investigative journalist for the Miami Herald. She was previously the investigative editor at the Sun Sentinel, where she worked for 25 years. And that's Sundown for Tuesday, January 9th. Leslie Obay Atkinson is our lead producer. Our producer is Elisa Baena. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News, and Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's VP of Radio, and our engineer is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the show, you might know her from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Author and comedian Paula Poundstone will be performing in Fort Lauderdale this month, but first, she joins us on Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only. Public Media.